Ah, comrade listeners, the eight-hour day. While it's uh, yet to reach either of my workplaces, that uh, LNL or the farm, it was first agreed to as long ago as 1856 and has been, well, a defining achievement of Australian society and political organisation. Well, that's the way it's been seen. An indication of our egalitarian fair-go nation. Ironically, it's now harder than ever to achieve an eight-hour day with our 24-hour connectivity. Uh, probably not something the, the campaigners anticipated when they fought so hard for it in the 19th century. But even the original concept of the eight-hour day is, well, the movement is not well understood, according to our next guest, none other than Sean Skulmer. Uh, Sean is a professor of history at the University of Melbourne and next week he's uh, giving a or the bicentennial Coral Thomas Lecture at the State Library of New South Wales on the origins of the eight-hour day. Now, Sean, just uh, for context, would you remind us about the glory days, the result of the eight-hour day, because there was a time in the early 20th century when Australia was seen as having one of the most progressive labour environments in the world. Very much so. So from the middle of the 19th century right through, I think, to probably the interwar period, Australia was seen internationally as the pace setter for the world's labour movements. So we were the first uh, labour movement uh, that won the eight-hour day for a number of trades. Uh, now, that eight-hour day, though, was still six days a week. So we're talking about a 48-hour week with people uh, still working a full eight-hour day on Saturdays. We we're also not only the first to win the eight-hour day, the 48-hour week, but the 44-hour week with a half day on Saturday, and then one of the first uh, to win a 40-hour week, um, which uh, was uh, established by an arbitration commission decision, which meant that it, it was implemented from the beginning of 1948. So through that whole period, that whole almost a century, Australia was seen to be the vanguard, the pace setter for finding a balance between work and life. We should, we should pay some credit to uh, Justice Higgins, should we not? Yeah, very much so. Um, so Justice Higgins was the, the first significant uh, president of the Arbitration Commission. The Arbitration Commission was a body that set wages and conditions for the Australian workforce. And uh, he did a number of things uh, relevant to the eight-hour day. One of them is that he extended it to some of the industries and occupations that didn't have it. And the other one is that he made a judgment um, that extended the 44-hour week, so gave uh, workers um, a half-day Saturday holiday. Now, that was actually highly controversial and ended up getting reversed by later arbitration court judges. So it's a complicated story, but definitely arbitration and Justice Higgins play a big role in this story. He famously said that it should provide frugal comfort for a white man with a wife and three children. We'll circle back to the, the colour question later. But uh, it was a, a better rate than other similar countries? Yeah, very much so. 
we were absolutely a pace setter, not just for limiting the hours of work, but also for setting a minimum wage. So Justice Higgins, as you said, setting what he called a basic wage um, at that level was much higher than in other places. And it also reflected this notion that actually the state should set minimum conditions, that this shouldn't just be left to the market. And that's, of course, one of the big elements of this story across the 19th and 20th centuries. As I was suggesting in the introduction, uh, you'd have to say the eight-hour day is becoming harder to achieve, Sean. I definitely agree with that. And that's one of the interesting things I think I've found in this story is that here in the 19th century, workers are saying we want to have, not just to reduce our hours, but we have a vision of what our lives should be and the place of work in our lives so that our time in the workplace can't be so exhausting that we're not able to participate in other things like family life, self-education, politics, citizenship. Um, and that's at the centre of what they're fighting for. And of course, what many people experience today is the idea that, that work has invaded all of our lives, um, particularly, as you noted in your introduction, in the era of connectivity, where we're feeling that we're having to field em uh, emails all the time, respond to um, issues uh, 24 hours a day. I feel like bursting into song with that 19th century uh, workers' ditty. Eight hours to work, eight hours to play, eight hours to sleep, eight bob a day, a fair day's work <laughs> for a fair day's pay. I wish the, uh, the Yes campaign had such a good jingle now. <laughs> but it wasn't only an industrial relations campaign, was it? No. That's right. So that was, again, something that I was surprised by. I thought this would be very much a question of battling in the workplace to reduce hours by, for most tradesmen, two hours a day, from a 10-hour day to an eight-hour day. And what I found was, yes, there was that, but there was a wider campaign. And in fact, members of this campaign called what they were doing a social movement, a term that we more often associate with the 20th century and with contemporary politics. They said that we're a social movement for a number of reasons. The first one being that what we're doing it goes beyond strikes and stop works. So there's a whole range of different kinds of political actions, marches, public meetings, boycotts, uh, letters, uh, essays, um, and of course, artwork and poetry go along with that. I, I was really astonished to find scores and scores of poems written by workers about the eight-hour day. And then the other element, of course, is that what these workers are saying is we don't just want to reduce our hours, we actually have a vision of the good life, a, the good life um, in which work plays a, a, a role, but a role alongside other important elements well, we'll dig deeper into that in a minute, but as you point out, in a strange way, it wasn't so much the trade unions that created the change as the change helped create the trade unions. That's right. There was very definitely a, a back and forth or a dialectical relationship with the unions, of course, leading the campaign in 1856, but that as the ideal spread... So that became an incitement for people who didn't have the eight-hour day to say, well, we should form our own unions too. And of course, there were other political organisations. They were dedicated, they were called eight-hours leagues or short-hours leagues or sometimes early closing associations that sometimes had thousands of members. These were alongside trade unions working together with them in order to make this change in Australian social organisation. 
So it was very broadly political. Yes, I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, so uh, it was political in its aims, political in the tools it's used, and also political in the way in which it targeted the state in different ways. So both unions and these other organisations sought to make claims upon colonial governments and sought to pressure them to work to support the ideal of an eight-hour day. So it was a fundamental claim for human rights. Yes. Again, this was one thing that really struck me. What you find when you look at the colonial newspapers and the other propaganda and the speeches of the movement is that they're saying a number of consistent things. One of them is, if we work long hours, our humanity is being disrespected. We are treated as animals or as machines or as slaves. And those metaphors um, come up again and again. So that's the first part of its arguments. And then the second part is the notion that we are human and as humans, we deserve other things. So we deserve the chance to cultivate proper familial relationships and to build those relationships. We, we deserve the right to educate ourselves and participate in, in learning. We deserve the right to be citizens and to participate in politics. And there's another phrase that really struck me that I think it was a, a saddle maker in a, in a speech in, um, in a Collingwood pub made in which he said, we deserve, quote, the sacred gift of time. So it was this notion that to be human is to have time to be free, to contemplate things um, that go beyond just uh, earning, earning a living. And so that kind of vision of a wider humanity is really what drove this movement and made it much more significant to its members than just saying, well, look, we want slightly better working conditions. I understand that uh, there were people who made comparisons of its significance to that of the Magna Carta. Yes, and this is part of this idea of, of the notion of rights. So the members of the movement were very keen on saying that, that what we want is not a privilege, not something that's uh, possibly evanescent. We want a right. Uh, and yes, once they begin, began to win it, they compared it to other rights um, that were dominant and accepted in, in British history. So they saw themselves as, as Britishers, uh, and as extending uh, the rights that the British had won in the past and very much the Magna, Magna Carta was a point of reference. Now, we should uh, go back to context because in the middle of the 19th century, there were no standardised employment regulations, were there? No, that's right. That was, that was the situation in colonial Australia. And so that made uh, the movement, you know, so radical because at the time the notion was very much that uh, there were laws of supply and demand and that uh, labour was a commodity like any other and therefore it needed to be regulated by the laws of supply and demand. And if government was to intervene, well, that was to interfere with these laws and that would ultimately be terrible calamitous for everybody. And, of course, there were frequent references to slavery. Yes, and, and this is... Um, I mean, I've already mentioned that, that part of what um, the campaign was doing is saying that we are fully human and contrasting uh, their full humanity with the animal or the machine or the slave. Um, but the slavery was, was the major point of, of comparison. And of course, here we get into the racialized dimension of the campaign, something that, of course, we would uh, not celebrate as we would some of the other aspects of the campaign. So um, it was very much considered to be a white person's movement, a white man's movement. 
Uh, and as the campaign mobilised and as it grew strength in the late uh, 19th and 20th centuries, uh, the idea of the eight hours day was seen to be a racial idea that separated out white workers from Chinese workers, from Pacific Islander workers, from Aboriginal workers, and from slaves elsewhere. And in fact, it was used as a, as a basis for exclusion. So it was a white man's uh, victory. What about white women? Yes, well, white women also um, weren't treated uh, as central to the movement. I mean, if we think back to the to the ditty that you uh, that you reproduced, you know, it's built upon the idea of eight hours labour first, and then once we knock off after our eight hours labour, well, we've got eight hours for recreation or eight hours for rest. So the whole assumption, of course, is that there is absolutely no labour, no work being done in the household, and that that uh, is outside the movement's view of of what work is. And of course, we know that to obviously always be have been untrue. And so the interests of women and the place of domestic labour weren't considered by the movement. Now, having said that, of course, uh, when women were in the workplace, in the formal labour market, there were efforts to support their struggles. And in 1885, in fact, there was a Factory Act passed that uh, in Victoria, which limited the hours of female uh, employees in factories to 48 hours per week. So there was a sense in which women workers became part of the campaign, but that the broader issue of work in the household and how that fit together with the eight-hour day was never confronted. This is Late Night Live, where the eight-hour day has never been of significance. And my <laughs> guest is uh, Sean Skelmer, Professor of Australian History at the University of Melbourne. And the university reminds me that education was particularly important in the minds of the workers, wasn't it? Yes. So they were really conscious that um, they were living through a period of great advances in knowledge, you know, a period post-enlightenment. Uh, for those workers here in Victoria, where the campaign made its um, fastest headway, they were conscious that there were, um, you know, massive public libraries and national galleries being constructed, that the university itself was being constructed. And in fact, the stonemasons building uh, University of Melbourne were some of the most important to winning the eight-hour day. And so they were saying, we can't learn, we can't participate in education when we're working such long hours. And there are some quite moving uh, letters and speeches given by tradesmen in the period saying, we're trying to educate ourselves, but we're so exhausted that we fall asleep in front of the, in front of the fire um, trying to read. William Ryan, who was the president of the uh, Seamen's Union, said this, our men want education. They want to get into our museums and libraries. What an outrageous suggestion. <laughs> yeah, and that was also, I thought, really an interesting uh, find because there was still an assumption, I think, at that time that, that those workers who worked in retail uh, with a white collar were the ones who wanted to educate themselves and that the blue collar workers weren't so uh, concerned with that. And yeah, words like the Siemens Union uh, speech that you cite, and also the stonemasons. It's really interesting that one of the first things the Stonemasons Society did was set up its own library uh, that they were very proud of. Uh, they would send books to each other at different work sites. Um, and of course, the trades halls that were established first in Victoria and then in the other colonial centres, they were first imagined as, as quote, trades halls and literary institutes. 
So the idea is this would be a place, would be a library, there'd be a coffee room where you could read, um, and there'd be a place for lectures. So that was very much their vision about what this wonderful new society as they saw it would be like. Now, you are fascinated by the the course of events of how the eight-hour day actually came about and the official narrative thereof. Yes, because the, the story that's sort of handed down, I think, in popular memory, or at least it was to me, was very much that this is really a story just of the middle 19th century, that the stonemasons break through and other building workers break through in the context of the gold rush and that very quickly the standard of an eight-hour day is diffused across the workplace. And that's really what I expected to find when I began to look at this more closely. But what I found uh, instead was a much more, I think, uh, varied but also interesting story of the slow progress by which this standard is, is won across the workforce. Well, stop-start comes to mind. Very much so. Stop-start and reversible. So there were some industries like, say, the coachmakers who had an eight-hour day and then employers seized back a 10-hour day in the, in the early 1860s. So it was a very stop-start. And it was really, um, it was also very uh, regionally distinct. So, um, you know, with apologies for um, generating interstate or intercolonial rivalries, you know, Melbourne and Victoria were, you know, a long way ahead of the other colonies in winning the eight-hour day. And there was very much a view that um, that the phrase "do as the Victorians do" <laughs> was was cited by um, <laughs> by trades by tradesmen in other places as they looked on. Uh, but but yes, it's very much just a case of only slow advances, really, until um, even in Victoria, till the late 1860s, early 1870s. And up until that point, it's really only the building tradesmen who have this eight-hour day. And it's only from the 1870s that then other sections of the workforce, including unskilled workers, begin to win this standard as well. So it becomes much more a societal norm. In the 19th century, the assumption was that uh, government should play only a limited role in economic life. Heavens above, that's still very prevalent in the <laughs> 21st, isn't it? Yes, yeah. So that, again, was one of the interesting things I, I found in the research, that some of the arguments that we hear today about, you know, say, the importance of uh, the market or about the fact that competition is so powerful that we can't afford to concede demands... That's, that's very much something you hear today, but um, this was in the 19th century. So when the eight-hour day was implemented, businesses and, and their spokespeople said, well, this is all very good in theory, but we can't afford it. We'll go broke. The same thing happened when we went from a 48-hour week to a 44-hour week. The same thing happened when we went from a 44 to a 40-hour week. So it's very much a, a story of a continuing public contest um, and arguments that get um, remade in, in slightly different ways across the decades. A couple of days ago on the program, we heard Henry Reynolds uh, talk about the history wars that surrounded racial issues in our past, but the eight-hour day has its history wars as well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I think as the, as the movement began to gather strength, particularly in the early 1880s, suddenly there was a battle over the glory, <laughs> over who who started the movement uh, and, you know, who could claim to be at the centre of, of the victories of the campaign. So, first of all, you know, there were accounts published in newspapers at the time trying to narrate the movement and trade unions were incensed by these accounts that thought hadn't done justice to their efforts. So, the Trades Hall here in Victoria formed a committee to try and investigate and provide its own history. 
And as is sometimes the case, that then collapsed because there was a dispute over its membership. Uh, and then the stonemasons, as a union itself, came forward and uh, produced their own report. And then, in turn, um, the people who'd been central to the winning of the demand in the 1850s formed their own organisation called the Pioneers of the Eight-Hour-Day Association. And they pushed very strongly to say, you know, we are at the centre of this story uh, and we should be sort of uh, canonised, I suppose. And they also <laughs> pushed for, um, for a monument, which was eventually, now we know it's out the front of the Trades Hall in Victoria, and for a two-volume history of the movement. And because they were the ones who controlled it, they, uh, they controlled the public narrative. They shaped a story in which really it's focused on the 1850s and there's not much attention to the, you know, the very interesting struggles that go on afterwards. You might be amused to know that I once took Kerry Packer on a secret after-hours tour of the trade hall <laughs> and uh, showed, him, showed him the eight-hours monument. Anyway... The contemporary version of that eight-hour campaign is perhaps the campaign for the four-day week. Yes, I, I very much agree with that. I think uh, it's similar in a number of ways. I mean, I think it really reflects the the ways in which the eight-hour-day campaign, you know, doesn't grapple with uh, contemporary workforce. So the, the eight-hour-day campaign is and its victories are associated with a world in which really it's men who go into the labour market and the wives and mothers stay at home and look after the kids. Now, we obviously know that, that we don't live in that world anymore and women, uh, including uh, you know parents, uh, mothers, are out there in the workforce just as much, but they're bearing this load, this extra load, this double shift at home. So the four-day week is a campaign which I guess is responding to that and saying uh, we need to sort of reorient and reimagine the, the relationship between work and life. And we need to do it in a way that's conscious of the caring work that happens in the home and that rebalances the relationship between caring work in the home and work in the labour market. So I think that's, that's a, a ways in which it extends it. But I think it's also, I guess, another commonality would be the fact that um, it appears utopian uh, in a way that the eight-hour day is, and yet it's already being experimented with uh, in various places, especially overseas. But even in Australia, we're beginning to see a few companies uh, experiment with this four-day week. Sean, thanks for that. My guest has been Sean Skolmer, Professor of History at the University of Melbourne. He was the 2022 Coral Thomas Fellow at the State Library of New South Wales and will give a talk there on the eight-hour day research he's done on Thursday the 19th of October at 6.30pm. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.